glad we have, you know, many of you know, we had this big wedding yesterday, John Stanley and Lindsay Peters, and it was just a terrific time. Um, I just know where to begin. It was so neat to see so many people from Grace Redeemer who were helping out, encouraging, whatever it took, they were helping out. And it was just a tremendous time. And we're so grateful for that. I do want to make sure we say John's dad and mom are here, Paul and Miriam, if you would stand up so people know who you are. And also Samuel, her big brother, is here too. So we're glad that you're here. And we hope that at the end you can make it the opportunity to meet with them. So great. Thank you. We're glad that you're here. At this time, any of our children, that it's time that they're ready to go. I think they're coming right around this direction. And we can come over here, guys, and I'll have something for you to do. That'll be fun. But again, <clears throat> let me just make a couple comments. Yesterday it was just incredible. We had just a wonderful wedding. And it was interesting to me that people that were not part of Grace Redeemer were coming up to us and making comments like, I can't believe how much your people work. They work so hard. We had kids and grown-ups working. And it was so neat to see the body of Christ working together for a couple who have such talent and such ability, and we look forward to what God's going to do with them. Just to remind you of a couple things, if you would, as well. Uh, to remind you that um, we're coming up to the end of what we're doing in terms of these bottles that we're doing, that we're saving for the thing. So that's probably, if you've been filling up those bottles, now's a good time next week to bring it in. After that, the following week, I believe, is that the last week, what we're doing? The end, and there's the baby bottle. So make sure you fill that up with your pocket change and bring that in. One other thing I want to remind you, too, is be coming here before we know about it, the day of the farm, remember, April 26th. That is such a wonderful time, and we're so thankful for uh, the opportunity to do that, and that'll be such a good time together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to be here today, to be able to worship you, to describe some of these attributes that we've been singing about, indescribable. Father, you know us by name. All these things that we recognize that you are God, and we are not, and that you are all-powerful, and we are not, and that we need you desperately. We thank you, Father, that we could gather together to hear your good word. We ask that you'd lead us, teach us, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you have been here, you know, we've been working through a, sa a series in First Samuel, and that comes to an end very quickly now. But as we come here to this section of scripture, it's a very important passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But it's also a very difficult passage, at least because of an event that happened that left a lot of people wondering, what a kind of God is this? And so we're going to be looking at this passage, and I need to do just a little bit of background. I know a lot of you have been following it, and you know the background where we've been, but some of you have not. So let me do a little bit of review to where we're at. We know that David has been on the run for a long time, and we know that he's been struggling, and he has that knowing in his heart that Samuel told him that one day he would be the king of Israel. But it seemed like it sure was a long time, and it was a hard time for him, but he was getting closer and closer to getting to that prophecy to be fulfilled. So remember what happened to David. Uh, Saul died with his sons, Jonathan and um, they died there on Mount Gilboa. It was a, just a tragic kind of thing, the end of, of, we see that, for the king. And so he died. Also, we had the saying, but what happens at that point that David was anointed king in Judah. Remember, David was working in the deep south, down by Hebron in that area. And he basically now at this point is starting to control that southern area. But he doesn't control the central and the higher area going up through Israel, if you can kind of visualize that. 
but he is at least now anointed king in Judah. He hasn't been had that in Israel, the northern section of that. But things are starting to turn around from him. We've seen all the struggles and the issues that he's gone through. He's been anointed king of Judah, but then there's battles going on. As we know, there's fighting going on. Who's going to win? Who's going to be king? David is still caught up in this whole issue about is he ever going to be really fully king? And, of course, we find out in the scriptures that does happen. And what happens because is the king who's Ishbosheth, who is the one king, excuse me, the one um, son of Saul who was still alive, he got murdered. And David wanted to make it real clear, I didn't kill him. Though I may have thought about it, I didn't kill him. And so what it is, and now all of a sudden, Ishbosheth, who's the last reigning one, he's gone as well. In other words, things are starting to merge together for David. He is becoming more and more solidified in his role as king of all of Israel. And so what we have in this passage is David is king of all of it. It doesn't mean that everybody's thrilled by that. Some of the people in the far north are like, eh, I don't know about that. But David's there, things are going better, and he's got some decisions to make. And one of the wise decisions he made is he realized, I can't be ruling way down here in the south when we've got a big nation that goes all the way up. And so he did a very wise thing. He decided, I'm going to leave from Hebron, where had been his place, where he'd been then. And he said, I'm going to go to some place in the middle. And from there, I can rule. And I need a place that defendables, where I can have a place where I can have my, 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 all the things that I need as, a, as the ruler. And so what he did, he decided to move into the central area, and it was really wise in him. Now you can imagine, I was trying to think of an illustration, suppose you found out tomorrow that the American government is going to leave everything in, in Washington and move it to Port Aransas. Now as Texans, we might think, that would be really cool. I mean, you know, you could have the whole front right there along the coast. But I bet the people in Maine and Portland, they wouldn't be too thrilled by that idea. And so, in other words, it's the same kind of thing. David realized, I can't be way down here in the south in the wilderness. I need to be strategically in a place that's kind of right in the middle between north and south. And I need a place that I can defend it. And he came across the absolute right place. And that right place was a place that was called Jebus. It was a place that was being held by the former Jebusites, and he thought, that would be the place for me. Now, the Jebusites are not going to say, welcome here, you're welcome to have our castle. And they're like, they're going to defend it. And so what he has to do is he has to go to it. In fact, what happens is he comes to these guys and said, well, I'm going to try to take this soon. So what happened? The king, David, and his men, they marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. Now, notice this. The Jebusites had said to David, you're never going to get in here. Even the blind and the lame can repel you. In other words, you can say all you want. It's like, you know, trash talk. You ain't getting in here. We have such a high place. Of course, Jerusalem is on a high level, very high. And it's very hard for troops to get up that place. And they're saying, you'll never get in here. David said, oh, really? Watch this. And as many of you know the story of what he did, he had some of his men go up the water shaft at night, which must have been an awful scary thing to do. But his troops came in underneath and up and then took the city. And David now had this city that they changed their name basically and called it Jerusalem. And so there's where David has got this together. Now, if David could imagine what Jerusalem would look like today, he would be shocked, particularly with all the cars and planes landing and all that. But you can kind of see where he's at. And there's the dome on the rock, by the way. Of course, you can see that. But behind that, you can see up on the top. That's a very high area, and it'd be hard to defend. 
And so he has a great place. So what we're seeing at this point is things are coming together for David. He is now the king. He's now got a city that he rules. The one thing that he's missing is the worship element. We need to get this Ark of the Covenant that God has given us and get it back in Jerusalem where it belongs. And that's where this story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. When that's there, he's got the three major things that he needs to be king. So let's get this passage, if you would. David again assembled all the choice men of Israel. 30,000. 30, this is a big group of people. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baalei Judah. We don't know exactly where that is. They think it's probably the same thing as a place called Kiriath Yarim that you probably have heard of. It's a place that's not far from Jerusalem. He said the ark, which is called by the name, that's the name, I mean, the, the name of you know, that, that, the, the cherubim there, by the name, the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Again, that was their understanding that there between the spread out wings of the cherubim, there God was willing to meet with his people. And so that was a special place. And so he's saying right now, he's saying, here we are. The ark is called by the name, the name of the Lord of hosts. This is the place where it'll bring it all together for us. So they set the ark on a new cart, not an old crummy one, a brand new one. And they transported from Abinabab's house, not far, probably maybe five to six miles, and they, uh, which was on a hill. So Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart, and they brought it with the ark God into Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. In other words, being very careful how they do it. One in front, one in back, one on the side, to make sure that this, the most important place in Israel's worship is that ark. And again, it's not a big thing if you think about it. It's about four feet long. It's about two and a half feet wide and about two and a half feet high. This is nothing like what's going to be like when David, excuse me, when, when the big temple is built. It's relatively a small place, I mean a small box, but it's important to them because that was where God has chosen to be with his people. So Ahi walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of fir woods, instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, whatever they are, and cymbals. In other words, after all these years of struggle, after all the suffering, after all the losses, thank you, Lord, and this is time to party. This is time to give praise to God. This is to recognize that the prophecy that God gave him when Samuel anointed him, it's coming to truth right here. We are coming into Jerusalem. And so you can see how he has experienced this, and other people are celebrating it, and they're bringing it right up, and it's like it's coming up to the height of all of this is coming to this great climax of everything coming together as God has made it for them. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to touch the ark of God and he took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence and he died right there by the ark of God. And you talk about ending the celebration. I mean, people are just shocked. Here's this good man, dead on the ground. All he tried to do, he saw the oxen stumble, and the cart starts moving over, and he grabbed it to make sure it's okay, and got dead on the ground. And this big celebration that they were experiencing, suddenly everything has changed. And David's dealing with this issue. I mean, 
if this guy, this poor guy he was trying to help out is dead, how are we ever going to get this ark into here? And he doesn't really know what to do. He's got to make some decision. They can't leave it right there. So he says, well, let's give it to somebody that's not an Israelite. Maybe they, they you know, will let them have to take care of it or something. That's exactly what he does. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And so he, in Hebrew, it sounds a whole lot better. It sounds a little funny in, Israel, I mean, in English. But he named the place Outburst Against Uzzah. You say, where do you live? Oh, I live at Outburst Against Uzzah. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. But anyways, the point of it is, David's like, God, why do you do this? Why is it that when here you bring us to this great moment when everything is right, that you allow this to happen to us? Now, notice what he does. David feared the Lord that day. And he said, how can, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now again, that's not a very good kind of uh, Hebrew name. Obed means, uh, means like servant. Edom, we know the Edomites who were like one of the peoples that they fought against. So you have Obed-Edom. And Gittite is probably meaning he's from the city of Gath, which was the Philistine city. So this guy is probably not an Israelite. So it's like, well, somebody's going to get zapped. Let it be somebody other than an Israelite. So I'm sure Obed-Eb say, not maybe, some of you are old enough to remember the uh, TV car cartoon where they were like, in, hey, what do you think of this new cereal? I'm not going to tell you. Well, let Mikey try it. Anybody remember that? <laughs> oh, no, I'm not trying it. And they go, hey, Mikey tried it. It's good. Well, it was the same kind of thing here where they're saying, uh, we don't want anywhere people to be killed. Let's get this guy over here, Obadiah, see if see if he gets zapped. And so what happens is they say, okay, we'll just leave it here for a while until we can figure out what to do with it. So the ark of the Lord remained in his house three months. And here's the odd thing: the Lord best blessed Obadiah and his whole family. In other words, hey, this guy's doing great. Not only has he not been zapped, he's doing really, really well. And so it was reported to King David, well, the Lord has blessed Odab Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David's like, okay, we're going to give this another shot. So David went and he had the ark of God brought up from Odom Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. No one got killed. They went on and it's time for celebrating again, particularly now that everything is put back together. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, they advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. Now, whether he personally did the sacrifice or he had it made by his demand is probably more like that, whatever it was. David, and I love this phrase, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. As you imagine, a lot of kings would be very stiff. I am the ruler, and here's their king, and he is having a great time. This is like Glenn, you know, when you let him go and he started going, you know. They're having this wonderful experience, but it's not just they're having a dance. This is worship for them. This is celebrating the goodness of God to his people. That after all the sorrows, after all the troubles, after all the sad times they've been through, here we are, we have a city, we have a king, he's a good king, and we've got the ark we got the trifecta of the three things we really need to have this nation. And so here they are. He's dancing with all his might before the Lord. He and his whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of the ram horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from the window 
and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And then here's the sad phrase, and she despised them in his heart. Now I'm sure for David this must be in great sadness. It's like when we finally get everything together, my own wife doesn't want anything to do with me. And the sad part is, as you realize, this woman had maybe good reasons not to be too happy. She, did, she didn't have a hard, she had a hard time. Remember Saul said, if you do this certain thing that I'll let you have, have Michael to be my wife. And so he, he did it and he became his wife. But then when David was out, Saul went and he took his daughter, Michael, away from David. And so first he's with David, she loves David. Then her, her father takes him away and gives him time to a guy named Palti. And so it's like, you know, I, I'm like, a, I'm like a, somebody on a chessboard being moved around. First I'm with David, now I'm with Palti. And now as these couple of years have gone on, suddenly David is now coming back into power. And these guys said, well, we're, we're, we're going to, we people from the north are ready to follow you. And David said, don't come to me until you give me back my wife, Michael. And that's a little sad story there in the passage that you read about in 1 Samuel, where Palti is walking with his wife crying. And they finally tell him, stop crying and stop right here. She's going to go and be with David. So she has been, you know, with David, apart from David, with a new husband, loses the husband, and now she's back with David. And you can understand why this woman can be bitter. And so David was leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart. They brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent. Notice this, it's not a building. His son is going to build a magnificent building. But all they have is a big tent, a nice tent for him. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He then distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each of all the multitude of the people in Israel, both men and women. That's a lot of food. As we say, though, if you feed them, they will come. And they came. And he was there, and he made sure everybody had a great time, and everybody got some food to eat. Now it says that, then all the people left, each to his own home. And here's where it gets sad, again, with dealing with Michael and David. It says this, when David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came up to meet him. Here's what she said. How the king of Israel has honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person who exposes himself. That's not the good thing to say to your husband. But you can see this is a woman that's been burned a lot along the way. And she looks upon David and thinks he doesn't look kingly. He's out there dancing and having a good time. What about me? I've just been jerked around from here and there, and well, now you want me to be back to be your husband again, to be your wife again. And it's been very, very hard. Notice this happens. David replied to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father, talking about Saul, and his whole family to appoint me rule over the Lord's people Israel. And he has this great phrase, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will give thanks to God for all that he has done for me. And it's sad because it says here, he said, and I'm going to humble myself even more, and I'll humiliate myself. I will be honored by the, quote, the slave girls that you spoke about. And here's the sad part. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. There's a couple options. We're not sure exactly what happened. It could be that the Lord, you know, kind of struck her with infertility, that she'd never have a child. 
I think it's maybe more likely the second option, which is David at that point had no more physical relationship with her, and she was just set aside. And the sad part is, not only is that the end of the relationship between him and his wife, but it's the end of the story for Saul. That's the end of the line for Saul's family. She's the last one who could have had another son and keep the line of, of Saul going, but not now. Now, there's one other opportunity. There was the one Mephibosheth, who was a member who was crippled and stuff, but he was not going to ever be in a position of being a leader. But in terms of the family, the family tree is dying or dead. And so it's a very sad story in that sense for her. She had, you know, real opportunities, but she had a lot of losses along the way. But it's interesting to see how David recognizes the necessity of worship. And their way of worshiping at that place was dance and music to worship the Lord and thank him for all that he had done. The prophecy that Samuel had told them when they anointed him, saying, you will once be king, had finally fully come to David. And that's why it brings us almost one more lesson, but brings us almost to the end of this series. God is now bringing all these pieces together for him to be the man that God should be, that God wants him to be. Let's go back to the story. They're going along the ark. They're coming in. The, the oxen stumble. Uzzah grabs it to make sure it doesn't fall, and God kills them. What would you think of that if you'd been there? How would you explain that? Passage is interesting because we look at that and go, the poor guy is only trying to help, wasn't he? Yeah, he was only trying to help. Then what does that speak about the character of this God that we worship? Well, let's think about it a minute. What are some of the things that maybe could be the reason for this? Interesting, uh, some of you may be familiar with some of your seminary students. Dale Ralph David is a guy who's written extensively on First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. He's a very good writer. This is a little bit off track, but stick with me. He had a very interesting thing, what he talked about on this passage. And he talked about this passage, which is so strange, Uzzah being killed when he was only trying to help. He said, he said you know, listen, this is a little strange. He said, for me, passages like this are evidence of the supernatural origin and trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, most of you are going to go, huh, what? I thought we were talking about Uzzah being dead. He's making the point, wait a minute, here's why these passages are important. Passages like this are evidence of the supernatural origin and trustworthiness of the, of the there because he said the Uzzah story goes so against the grain of human preferences. We would never have, quote, and invented a God like this. Not if we want to make converts and influence people. It's like, who wants to be around a God who zaps a person who's only trying to help? And he uses that as an illustration, say, you know what? That's, I'm so grateful, he's saying, because the scriptures, they tell us exactly how it is, not how we want it to be. Think of all the stories about David that maybe they would have cut out of there if they did. It's a good thing they didn't have like, you know, computer. They could just delete the things they didn't like. They just tell it the way it is, whether we get it or not. And said, so we would not have, we would not have that influence of people. He goes on, this God is not very marketable, speaking about the God. Anybody who says the God of the Bible is just merely a projection of our wish fulfillment has not read the Bible. You read the Bible, and there are hard things to understand. There are passages where you're going to scratch your head. And there's passages where you're going to say, are you going to, what are you going to do with a guy, uh, excuse me, what are you going to do with a God who zaps a guy who's only trying to help? 
How does that fit into your own personal theology and understanding of Scripture? So what could be some of the things that happened with this to make it happen for Uzzah to be killed the way he did? Why did he get killed? One of the things, and there's probably several things that go together, was their understanding of the fact when God tells you how you're to do something, you do it the exactly right way he tells you. For example, 1 Chronicles chapter 15. So we're in Chronicles there. This is coming years afterwards. They're looking back on the story of Uzzah. And they say this in verse 13. For the Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites, remember the Levites are the ones that were responsible for the sanctuary? You Levites were not with them the first time. That must be the first time they're talking about when they brought the ark in. For we didn't inquire of him about the proper procedures. In other words, none of us was there to say, Lord, how would we do this in a way that would be honoring to you? So this passage in First Chronicles may be the strongest one of saying, was not anybody going to ask the Lord after all these years to ask what would be the right way to do this where we honor the holiness of God and make sure we do it right? Now, other people took it some other ways. A thousand years later, Josephus, who was there in the time of Jesus and the destruction of the temple, Josephus had a different theory. He said Uzzah died because he touched the holy ark when he was not a priest. That's possible. You know, nobody else is supposed to touch it except the priest. It could be both of those kind of merged together. Whatever it was, it goes back to the issue of the fact that God is holy, and you will do what a holy God tells us to do. Particularly, you can see this passage. It really deals with the seriousness of God's holiness. For example, there's the example of the Kohathites. Now, I know a number of you have been memorizing Numbers chapter 4, but you remember in that passage, in Numbers chapter 4, there has this big section about the role of the Kohathites regarding the ark in the wilderness. Notice, there's a long section that says, here is how you'll take off the highest level of the, of the tent. Here's the second level. Here's how you're to walk when you go in there, how you're going to cover it, how you're going to do it to make sure that you do not see what's going on in there. All these laws, it tells them what to do. I think we've got it in the slide here. Here it is. This is from the passage. The service of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting concerns the most holy objects. Okay? Whenever the camp is about to move on, Aaron and his sons are to go in, take down the screening veil, the one that keeps them from going into the ark. They, so it says it's Aaron and his sons, not anybody else. And they're going to cover the ark of the testimony with it. Aaron and his sons are to finish covering the holy objects and their equipment whenever the camp is to move on. The Kohathites will come and carry them, but they are not to touch the holy objects or they'll die. That would make you pretty clear that you wanted to get it right the first time. And so in other words, it's making it very clear. It's, it's not like the thing that happened to Uzzah. It's like, where did this crazy thing come from? It's like all the way long, God has been talking about the holiness of himself and the fact that you will deal with a holy God in a holy way. And here are the things that will help you to do that, to make sure nobody gets killed because you do something against the ark. And all the things that they are to do. And again, it keeps coming back to the fact that we have a holy God, pure God, a holy God that is beyond our comprehension of what holiness can be. And we look at things like that and say, okay, he means that we take this seriously in our relationship to him as well. Look, if you would, until we talk about God's attributes. We talk about all these different attributes. I know the children have worked with that with Susan, and there's probably more coming on I heard him talking about. But we talk about the great attributes of God. Many people would argue the greatest one is his holiness. It is maybe the most distinct 
of all the ones that we have in the attributes of God because God is so different, so greater, so holy, so separate from the foolishness and the sinfulness of man. And so it's quite it's so important that the whole, we recognize how whole, holiness is. But it's interesting. If you listen to any church you go to, not all of them, but in many of them, you'll hardly hear the word about holiness. It's about us. It's about me, what I want, what I need, what my thrills are, what is it I want to do. And the scripture is, no, it's all about him, God, not us. And that's important. That's because we say, well, I mean, that's for those people back then. Yeah, but Leviticus made it clear. Be holy because I'm holy. In other words, God is calling us to holiness. Now, if you're saying, I will never be that holy in this lifetime, you're right. You won't. That's not an excuse to say that we do not, by, with, as much as we can by the Holy Spirit, do all that we can to be more like God, to be more holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. For example, we have this passage in uh, Oswald Chambers. Holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of man. You know, it used to be that you know, the chief end of man was to know God and to love him fully. In our culture now, it's to have sex is basically the greatest thing that's supposed to be in the world. And our culture is suffering from an overload of sexual satisfaction and just saturation that you just can't get away from it. It's a tough era for young men to try to live a pure life in a world where everything is so there and it's so awful. And it's important here in this passage when it's talking about happiness, holiness, not happiness, as the chief of our end of man. It's important to recognize how important this is, that God calls us to be holy people. D.A. Carson is one of the top New Testament scholars. He put it this way, why, how important it is about holiness. He said, people do not drift toward holiness. That's an important phrase. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. And I appreciate what he says. And I want to inter make one comment there. It's apart from grace-driven people do not gravitate. Now, another he's saying it's not on your own. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit, of cooperating with the power of the Holy Spirit, that God is going to give us the strength and the ability to be the men and women that he calls us to be. And D.A. Carson talks about, apart from grace-driven, not self-driven, but grace-driven effort, to we, we will not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience of scripture. This passage is very strong because it really makes us ask this question, do you really want to be holy? I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. I guess I'm like a lot of people. I sort of want to be holy. I just don't want it to get in the way of what I want to do. And then Lord in his graciousness usually does something to shake my head and say, really? Do you ever think you'll be fully fulfilled apart from fully giving yourself to me? Do you really want to be holy? Are you willing by the power of the Spirit to say, Lord, I got lots of growing yet to do in my walk with you. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, enabling me and encouraging me to be more holy that one day I'll be with you a place where there'll be holiness forever and ever. Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, it's a hard one. It's hard for us to realize how important your holiness is and how when you give us instructions, you mean it. And we know that you call us as your people, men and women, boys and girls, 
to be on a track of trying to learn to be more holy, to follow you, to find real life, to find real satisfaction, to find a life that's worth living, that has an impact on the life of people around us. Lord, help us. Encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name.